For this episode of the Curious Climber podcast, I'm pleased to bring you Nikki Smith. Nikki is a climber, artist, writer, photographer and guidebook author. She's been climbing all over the world since the early 90s, putting up close to 150 first ascents on ice, trad and sport, some of which are in remote places such as Mongolia. This is actually how I first connected with Nikki. I'd heard she'd been there, so I sent her an email asking for advice on a few of the areas. Instead of emailing back with the standard vague climber's reply, she actually sent me a guidebook she had written to one of the areas. Nikki has authored five climbing guidebooks. Since then, we've become friends. She's kind, smart, thoughtful, and fun to be around. She always seems to have an interesting viewpoint on climbing, which is what you'd expect after a long and varied climbing career. Nikki also works as an advocate for the LGBTQIA community and is a board member of the Access Fund. Nikki is herself a trans woman and during this podcast she speaks to me bravely about her transition or as she refers to it, her realisation. Before I met Nikki I would have felt like I was quite aware of trans issues but until I got to know her, in reality I was actually quite ignorant to the challenges trans people face daily, including trans climbers. And now it's clear to me how important it is to talk about such issues, whether you know a trans person or not. I hope you get as much out of this conversation as I did. We actually recorded this podcast in her house in Salt Lake, after which I was lucky enough to be cooked dinner by Nikki. She's a five-star cook and makes a banging old-fashioned cocktail. Enjoy. Oh, we're rolling. So, Nikki, <laughs> here we are in your guest bedroom, surrounded by photos that you have taken, and they're all on the covers of magazines. Yeah. <laughs> so, we've got, how do you say the Polish one? Gory. I think it's Gory. Gory. And you've got Rock and Ice there. Where's that, that photo? Uh, that's the Uinta Range. It's about an hour and a half above Salt Lake. One of my oh. favorite places in the world. It looks like it's a Rapalese or something. It looks like hard sandstone. It's quartzite, which okay. and it's very close to a hard sandstone like a Rapalese. It's oh, cool. a really interesting rock. I love it there. Yeah, it looks really good. And then, wait, is that yours as well? Yeah, that was Deadpoint Dead magazine. Mac. It's not around anymore. I don't know if I ever saw that magazine. It was just based in the U.S. Okay. Was it more like sport climbing? Sport bouldering? climbing, bouldering, yeah. And then you've also got trail runner. Yeah. Frank, who's that on the who are you particular? Uh, that's Holly Hansen. Oh yeah, I know Holly. Yeah. Ah. So, I guess that could open into chatting a bit about your photography. Yeah. <laughs> How long have you been taking photos? I've been taking photos since I was probably five years old or so. My dad gave me a little point and shoot camera when I was five, and that was his thing. Was was photography and so started okay. kind of doing that with him and making him and entered a few photos in a state fair and won a little blue ribbon and kind of got hooked on it nice. from that. And so that will have been film back then? Yeah. Do you still have a film camera? I don't anymore. I kept on to it a lot longer than I probably should have. I mm. was slow to make the transition to digital early mm. on but now I'm fully embraced in it. I know a lot of people are kind of going back and mm. kind of getting back to the analog film and there are things I miss about it but overall I think digital there's there's a lot more room for creativity than ever before with it. Okay 
Um, one of my friends who's a photographer said that the best way to learn how to take good photos is to learn on analog and then then move to digital because she sort of was saying that like because with digital nowadays you can do so much post editing and then you can also kind of just just snap 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 whereas with the analog obviously you have to take the time and really frame things because you can't just take a million photos because then they'll all just come out in film yeah i I think it can work either way. For me, I'm glad that I had slides and, and film early on. I mean, you could go out on a week-long shoot and you have no idea what anything mm. looks like, so you better know what you're mm. doing yeah. if, if you want to actually make a living at it. And mm -hmm. so it, I think it taught me to be very effective with the film. Mm -hmm. Now you can just hold down the button and get as much as you want. And yeah, you can do a lot of editing and changing, but if you didn't get it right in the camera the first time with, with a slide, then your entire trip could be thrown away. Mm. It's, like, it's like on-site versus Redpoint, isn't it? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. It's yeah. a little bit like this podcast because I don't want to have to edit it afterwards. So it's on-site, so don't say anything you don't mean. I'll, I'll not, try not to. I'm not going to edit it afterwards. Um, cool. All right. Well, should we start? And you can just, I don't know, give a little snapshot of how you got into climbing and, you know, what your earlier life looked like. But... Okay. Yeah. Um, my name's Nikki Smith. And I grew up mostly in Utah. I was born in Portland, Oregon, but I've lived all over Utah. And I started climbing when I was 16 years old in the Ogden area, which is about 45 minutes from Salt Lake. And there was a small climbing community there. Um, I was afraid of heights. And so it was early on, I'd repelled a few times and hated it. Um, but some friends invited me to go actually try to go up. And the first time I did it, I was just hooked. Like it just everything went quiet. I could just completely focus and like all the, the rest of the world was gone. And it gave me another excuse to be out outside and just learn. Cool. Um, I just, I, yeah, I, I was immediately hooked. I started dragging like my little sisters out and, and brother and my youngest sister was six years younger than me. And I would tie her to a tree or or kind of really small tree, almost bushes, to have her belay me. And probably did a lot of things, mm -hmm. stupid things, that I'm yeah. not sure how I'm still around, but yeah. uh, it all worked out. And yeah. Just anyone I could get to go out with me, I dragged out there and just really got hooked. Were you climbing in the gym at all as a kid? Uh, not that much. It was mostly outdoors initially. And then after the first year, a gym, a small bouldering gym opened up in the Ogden area. And there weren't that many climbing gyms around at the time. Salt Lake had had one and then another one opened up a little bit later in Salt Lake. But this was a small one, just kind of bare, kind of wood panels and, mm. you know, no texture paint or anything and just really horrible holds that were uncomfortable and would mess up your hands pretty badly if if you tweaked it wrong yeah, yeah but standard. i really loved it um, i didn't have much money and so I, I was able to do a trade with the owners of the gym and did some artwork for them and they took pity on me and <laughs> let me get a punch pass and so i'm going there when i could but most of the time i spent outside i yeah. preferred it even though i loved the yeah. gym and did you continue that love for climbing in the outdoors at, into adulthood? I did, yeah. I left 
Um, I left Utah for a little while when I was almost 19. I was 18. I joined the army and had my 19th birthday in boot camp in uh, Kentucky at Fort Knox. And I spent three years active duty in the army. And then I got out on a scholarship through the, it was through the army. It was called the green to gold program. And I was supposed to go back into the military afterwards as an officer. And it would be a full ride scholarship plus living expenses. And midway through, I just, I just knew I didn't want to do that. Uh, the mm-hmm. military was good for me in a lot of ways. It helped me get to college. I don't know that I ever would have been able to do that any other way, uh, but it just wasn't right for me. I wanted to continue to be in the outdoors and climb. And while I was in college, I started a climbing club at the University of Utah and then started volunteering as the regional coordinator for the Access Fund and so organized slideshows for those for the Access Fund and then the climbing club and local companies kind of took notice and asked me to help them out with some things that led to a full-time job with the climbing company. Um, but I also, I, I was working at a climbing gym at the time, uh, teaching, setting, working the front desk. I started guiding. It's my whole world since right. Just college. Right, embedded in yeah, climbing. Yeah, it's been climbing. Yeah. yeah. And then you did some pre- even pretty cool trips over the years, haven't you? Yeah, I've been able to go all over. Um, I did a lot of freelance work early on while I was still working for a company. It was a smaller outdoor climbing company at the time, and so I had a little more free time. And as that company grew, um, it became harder and harder to do trips. But early on, I was able to do quite a bit. And then working for the company, I was a staff. I was the head of the marketing department, so kind of a staff photographer too, and athlete for them. And so I got to travel all over the world to go to distributor meetings with different climbing brands in Europe. And, and so I'd fly over there for work and then just stay for a week or two, either before or after, and just climb as much as possible. Nice, and yeah. Got to go to some just amazing places. Dedicated climber. Yeah. And out of all those places, have you got any that really memorable for you? Um, you were just recently there at Mongolia. Mm. It was really amazing to me. It was just interesting to see a place that was kind of in the middle of this cultural change. Uh, you know, that'd be, depending on where you were at, half the people were in traditional dress and the other half were in modern dress. You'd go to some of these small towns and there'd be only a handful of buildings and there'd be a hitching post out in front of the little, um, I don't know, probably 15 square meter building with with food and maybe some gas and that and there'd be a hitching post there and you'd see a nice shiny land rover with people dressed in modern clothing and then on the hitching post were ponies and horses and um like Mm. carts pulled by donkeys or yeah or ponies you know and it was Mm. just interesting to see that change um sad in some ways and amazing in some ways like Mm. everything yeah, yeah, I was so blown away by how badly connected the country is, you know, how bad their road networks are. Um, and just so so many of the roads are just the tracks where the other car has driven over the grass, you yeah. know. And then so then if people all drive in the same tracks, it like cuts out those holes in the, in the grass. And then they have to pick a new track because they've got so deep. So then you have to just hope that that track's in a similar spot to the other track because otherwise the road (laughs) moves. Yeah. I just thought that was so crazy. Yeah, but at the same time, it's so connected. The 
cell service there is better than anything in the U.S. It's like, well, yeah, true, yeah. Like there you was had some cell service everywhere, work. and no matter how far out you were, you could always see see a girl, you know, a yurt yeah, somewhere. Yeah. There was always someone within sight so, distance somewhere. Or a horse. Yeah. <laughs> it's always a horse, horse or somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a crazy country. Yeah, um, it was it was beautiful though. It was just nice to be be away from everything and just. One of the things I really like about climbing is I sometimes like to do the touristy type stuff. But for the most part, I think a lot of the tourist attractions and those places, you don't really get a good feel for the mm. culture. You don't get to meet people. No. And climbing, you're going to smaller towns. You're meeting meeting local people. And, you know, we were invited in in with families to, to have meals and mm-hmm. got to really have more of a cultural experience. I mean, still as a tourist, you're never fully going to experience everything but it just I don't know it feels more connected mm-hmm. to, yeah to meet with people in that way yeah I've always thought of climbing is like a kind of a passport to see different bits of the world mm-hmm. um and uh yeah because I, I remember I don't, you don't know if you guys have this phrase but we call it a gap year you know where you when you there's like we have a year off between school and university where uh, we go traveling and it's become a bit of a cliche thing because so many 18 year olds do it. Um, but when I was on my gap year, um, it was interesting because climbing took me to some of the places off the beaten track, some cool spots, but then also to some of the places that, you know, like Thailand or whatever, where a lot of the other gap year students would go mm-hmm. or other travelers. And um, I would always feel like slightly smug because climbing will always take you to cool places. It's like you don't have to do the research to find out something, some place that's interesting. Climbing will just default take you somewhere that's interesting. Uh-huh. I always love that about climbing. Yeah, me too. Yeah, gap years aren't really a big thing here, unfortunately. The U.S. travel isn't mm. as big of a focus as it should be. I think it, I wish yeah. it was... It was more a part of the culture here. Mm. Yeah, I guess it's hard because you have so many beautiful landscapes here already and so many different landscapes. I guess some people just think, oh, well, why would I why would I bother flying to Europe or wherever when I could just go to Florida or something? Yeah. You'd like to think that they're thinking about their carbon footprint, but I don't think they are, are they? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, okay, cool. So what happened next? Um, I, I did a little of everything in climbing. I did a lot of first ascents. Um, I worked on, on building a business for, for this outdoor company and kind of building a brand on that. I wrote five climbing guidebooks, uh, all for your areas in Utah. Um, a mini one for Mongolia as well, though. Um, like, yeah, correct? a mini one. Yeah, it was that just, was useful it was, for us. <laughs> it was really documenting our trip, but then, you know, we tried to find information on the mm-hmm. few of the parties we knew had been out there before and we got some of that info. I don't know. I you don't make guidebooks to earn a living. Like no. It's a way <laughs> complete waste of time. But I love I love books. I've always loved to read and growing up I never thought I would travel anywhere. And books were kind of a gateway for me mm. to new places and new experiences, new ideas. And guidebooks in particular have become something to where 
it has a little bit of everything I'm interested in. There's there's climbing, there's the climbing history, the the local culture and ethics are part of that. And then it has my photography, it has my writing, it has my design work. And so it's just this package of a lot of a lot of myself, you know, mm, in that. Cool. And, um, I don't know, I, I really love the place and yeah, I wanted wanted to have more people there and from elsewhere be able to experience some of the same things we did. Yeah, well, it certainly helped us um, for a few of the areas. Um, and then you, you've written a few for Utah. Is that rock climbing or ice climbing? Both. Both, yeah. Yeah, rock and ice, both. And um, so, yeah, maybe talk a little bit about ice climbing. Uh, that's, I think that's what I've kind of developed a little more of a name for myself as a climber. Like, I love, I probably do more rock overall, but ice has kind of become my thing. Uh, I first, I think I first started in 98 and I hated it. I hated ice climbing. It was miserable. I was in like these plastic Koflak boots and straight shafted axes and top roped a few things. And it just wasn't that fun. And the next year, a friend that worked at the climbing gym with me, you know, he was talking about this climb in Little Cottonwood Canyon, which is right above Salt Lake. And it's this, um, 800 foot long water ice three that is a super classic and he'd been talking about it all all summer long about how amazing it was and how we needed to do this and it was an adventure and he convinced me to go with him and we got up there and we got to the base and he looked at it and he's like i can't do this like here you go handed me all the stuff and for some reason i'm just like well i'll just see how it goes then the bottom doesn't look too bad and so I just decided to do it and started leading and did the whole thing. And it was amazing. Like That sounds terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> There's something, though, about the adventure. And that's a lot of what I like in rock, too. Um, you know, I was really into hard bouldering and sport climbing for a long time. And now I, I kind of prefer just a little more adventure to it, just not knowing what the outcome is going to be. Uh, that's one of the things I like about First Ascents, and mm, that's what ICE and that day in particular was, was I had no idea what to expect, I didn't mm -hmm. know anything. With the top roping, I could see, you know, I saw the anchors, I knew exactly where everything was, it was, the, I don't know, that sense of mystery or wonder mm. wasn't there. Yeah, just the, you just left with the pain in your feet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a lot of, I, I wasn't too cold back then, but... You know, it was still a little mm. screaming barfies and, mm. you know, it was a little miserable mm -hmm. um, bashing my knuckles on the on the ice. But, yeah, the next year it was just amazing. And so I started getting into it more and gear was progressing pretty rapidly at that time. And then I, I had a friend who worked at Black Diamond who kind of became my mentor. He was one of the main guys in ice and mixed climbing in Utah and then elsewhere. He used to be a North Face athlete, and he was a huge deal to me, and he started mentoring me, and that changed everything. It went from mm -hmm. being just like this super scary, miserable sport to maybe just a little less scary and miserable. Mm -hmm. But I somehow just, I don't know why, I, I still like it, even though mm -hmm. I don't understand it. Mm -hmm. Like, I can... I can tune things out, I can run it out or do scarier lines that I take some of my other friends on and they're just freaking out and then I'll freak out above a bolt. 
Mm, you know, that does happen quite a lot, though, doesn't it? With some people get more scared because I obviously I coach people, and you know, some people will say, you know, I can do all this, like I can solo or I can run it out on an ice climb or something, but I can't fall off on a sport route. And yeah. I guess it's because if you know you can't fall, some some people do really well with that with the with that scenario where they just they just have to stay calm. They know they can't fall. And then they just kind of go for it. Yeah. Whereas when there is this possibility of falling, that's what some people find uncomfortable. Yeah, definitely. And there, there also is something that, you know, you, you can get pumped out. Ice climbing, mixed climbing is hard, but it's still you're on jugs. Yeah. If you know what you're doing, a lot of a lot of the routes aren't really that difficult overall compared mm. to pushing yourself on on a hard sport route. Yeah. The moves. Uh, at least for ice, are usually pretty predictable. You know exactly what mm. to expect. Whereas a route you're on rock, you're you have no idea which way you're going to contort or twist or turn to to get to the next hold. And so it's I don't know. There's it's a little simpler mm. in some ways. And I guess I'm I have a very short memory and I'm okay with <laughs> being miserable for a while. Do you know what I don't like about ice climbing when I did it? Well, first of all, I have sore toes, so that's one of my excuses. Um, but then, I don't know if you found this, but like, you know, with water ice especially, it seems like you can make it safer if you just keep bashing or, or with your feet if you like keep kicking. Uh-huh. But then I would get a bit, so at the start, I would like make this huge effort to like make sure I was like really kicking in and like getting it solid. But then as I always get more bored, because obviously that takes time, then I'd rush, but then that would feel more dangerous. And so it would all constantly feel like my attention span was the thing that was, like, making it less safe. Yeah. <laughs> You're yeah. like, yeah, that's it's, nice. <laughs> it's one of the things I kind of like about it, too, though. There's, you know, rock climbing, there is definitely a lot to consider. But with ice... You know, you're focusing on the climbing movement, protecting it, but then you've got to know snow conditions and what's been going on for the past few weeks or months, even with with all the weather. And you've got to keep track of the temperatures to be aware mm. of rockfall or, you know, how the ice feels mm. and sounds and looks. And there's mm. so many things to it that I, I kind of like that. Yeah, there's, there's like a ways. texture to it that isn't there yeah. in rock climbing. Yeah, it's just a... That there's a little more experience to it. And I think as you get more comfortable and you know, okay, what do I really have to kick into hard or swing hard? And mm. what what do I just feel like I need to, but I don't really need to? Yeah, yeah. Oh, maybe you've inspired me to do some Scottish winter climbing this, this winter. Have you been to Scotland? I haven't yet. No, I'd like to. Yeah, you should come over. My mom's family came from Scotland, and so I'd love to okay. go and just kind of see some of where they came from yeah the Um, highlands yeah i mean it's really beautiful up there in a sort of quite a different way to the landscapes you have out here so yeah you could just go though and it'd be too warm and it just rain that's okay (laughs) you just have to drink whiskey instead i guess yeah hang out with gilly that's not a bad thing (laughs) yeah i haven't seen her in a while yeah do some cold water swimming oh i tried to do that i went to the winds um in Wyoming, I guess it was August, and there was still snow coming down into some of the lakes. And I tried. I got in one that was a little lower in elevation and got a lot more sun. 
and I was it was freezing, but I was able to get in. And then there was one in the Cirque of the Towers that I just couldn't get fully in. I, mm. I tried two different days mm. and oh, went back perfect. and I could get up to maybe like mid-thigh, but I mm. couldn't commit to going all the way in. Like, I don't know yeah. how she and you both do that. No, I, I don't do it like she does it. No, I don't. No, but you started to do it last yeah, year. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was it was cool, actually, because I've, I've always hated cold water swimming. I've always ne I've never really seen the point in it. Mm -hmm. But then when kind of Gilly introduced it to me as as really as like a mental training thing, really, and sort of explained to me how good you could feel afterwards, um... And then she, basically I went up to the lakes in the middle of the winter and she taught me what to do. And since then, I really see the value in it. And uh, I think it is really cool that because you you know it's not going to kill you. It's not going to hurt you, right? So it is just discomfort. It's just a feeling in the body, isn't it? It's like I would always tell myself is it's just a sensation in the body. It's just a sensation. Yeah. Um, but sometimes it's so powerful, like the desire to get out or the like the aversion to get in. It, yeah, it's like it is how, how you say, you know, you just can't make yourself do it. It's like holding your hand over a flame or something. It's just like, it just feels too horrible. Um, but obviously you can build it up. I would imagine the wind is like really cold water. So, whereas like in the lake near my house in the summer, it's not, it's not that cold. No, but the stuff that you and Gilly have done where yeah. you're chopping out sections. Oh no, but I didn't do that. No, no. that wasn't me. I, sh I, I did one swim with her in the winter. And which really took everything. I was like, really, Gilly? It's amazing how, like, you know, you can you can say to yourself in the morning, you're going to go in, and you're just like, how bad could it be? And yeah. then, you know, it's like the middle of the winter in the Lake District, and you're taking your clothes off, and you're in your bikini, and just like, no, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? I know, it's hard enough to strip down, like, ice climbing, <laughs> like, after a long approach to change base layers and that, like, to strip down into a bathing suit. It's funny talking to her, too, because she's like, I don't know how you ice climb. I'm just like... What yeah. you do is so much colder. Yeah. So much It is scarier. over quicker, though. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is, but it's you're, only not, two minutes you're not in the... moving that much. It's just, I don't know. I guess yeah. it, we all become comfortable in some ways with something, mm -hmm. and it just feels more natural to us. And yeah. I guess for better or for worse, sometimes we stick to that and mm -hmm. and develop that more but than other yeah. skills. Yeah, definitely. It's... It's uh, it's interesting, like the comfort zones we create around ourselves, because for a lot of people from the outside looking in, they might think, you know, like oh, ice climbing, there's no way it could ever be comfortable. But obviously, you've done it enough that you are fairly comfortable with it now. Yeah, and it's one of those things. Like, I'm not really that good. I'm just committed to it enough that I'm willing to put up with more than other people might be. Mm-hmm. And I've developed skills because of that. And so even though I don't feel like I'm the strongest climber, I have a lot of experience behind me that allows mm. me to get through things that that kind of make up for for being a an old old lady. <laughs> You're not an old lady. <laughs> you don't look old anyway. Um but okay, that was that was interesting, it made me think of something. Do you what do you think of this concept of like being a real climber because I catch myself but you know I think of you as kind of like a real climber but I don't like saying that because I don't want to then 
not say that anyone else is a real climber, but there's something about, you know, you've just been in the climbing world for so long. You've, you just have all this experience, you know, from bouldering to ice climbing, you travel all the world doing it. Like maybe you're not the strongest climber in the world, but like take you to a mountain and you, you've got the skills to get up it or to, to a big wall or to, to any kind of cliff. And that, that's one of the things I, admiring climbers was is their versatility and how well they can just get up something um but yeah what do you think about that i don't know i guess i have a hard time with it sometimes i i identify as a climber and like my wife she is a person who climbs she doesn't mm. like she'll climb here and there she i think even when she did climb a lot she never really called herself a climber i think it really comes down to for me it's if you call yourself a climber, if that's like what you love, that's what you're passionate about, I don't think it really matters how hard you climb, what style or mm-hmm. whether it's one style or, or many, I, I think you're a climber. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that as well. But there is, there is something about, I, I guess everyone's just on a path, aren't they? They're on a journey and you can be year one of being a climber and or you can be year 10 or you can be year 20 or something um and and, and you, you we all just have certain levels of experience in the sport but yeah i do think that it's it's nice to be broad about who we consider the climbers or not yeah <laughs> but it, it goes all over the place i mean i i had years where all i did was boulder and i mm. rarely ever roped up i didn't i didn't really ice climb and then I have, you know, years where I, I focus on slab or I focus on this or that or, you know, ice anymore in the Western U.S., you, you take what you can get. Mm. Um, the seasons are getting so much shorter. The average mm. um, the average temperature is just a little too warm all the time now to have consistent ice. So I take whatever I can get there. But I do tend to kind of... Like, oh, this year I'm really into slab climbing and little cottonwood. And then mm. the next year I want to focus more on cracks or this mm. or that. And like, I don't, I don't stay as well-rounded throughout the year, I think, as I probably should. And there are certain styles, like, I hate off-width. Some of it's because of my body size. Off-width for most people is, like, I can barely move in there. Mm. Um, but I don't know. I've, I've never been able to figure out how to enjoy it. Mm, and, me you know, either. <laughs> But I do I really want to get there though. I want to I want to get to a place where I enjoy off with. Yeah. Yeah. I want to get to a place where I enjoy desert climbing. We went to Indian Creek this summer. Yeah, I mean you spring. live right here. I know. I, I used to go out there. I used to go to Moab and and the creek and I never fully got into it, but I went somewhat regularly and I stopped because I just wasn't I don't know. I didn't put the time or energy into feeling really comfortable at it. And so now I'm really afraid of it. Mm, it's a reason to go back. I know, in some <laughs> ways, but then there's so many other things that I want to do. That mm. Do I put time in the things that make me really excited? Or do I put time in the things that I know I should be better at because it will make me a better climber overall, but I'm not really that excited about? Like, how do you... Mm. I think the trick is trying to find that balance of how do you push mm. yourself to work on those weaknesses but still stay motivated and do things that you're really interested mm. in. 
I, th I think it is really important to work on your weaknesses, but you don't have to do that exclusively. So yeah. you can, you know, one day in the gym, you, you just have a day where you do all the fun stuff and you do whatever takes your fancy. And then, but the next day, then you're like, now I need to work on my weaknesses or whatever. So yeah. I feel like that's a good balance because you don't want to be doing that all the time because sometimes you just want to be able to flow and feel good when you're climbing and not be doing the thing that you don't like. Yeah. Yeah, and lately I've been having a hard enough time just trying to enjoy climbing the past couple of years that I haven't been in, in a space where I feel like I can push myself even on the mm. things I want to do, that to work on weaknesses hasn't been there, but I'm hoping to get back to that. Mm -hmm. I'd like to get back to a spot where I feel like, at least for me, like I'm pushing myself. Mm -hmm. I haven't really been pushing myself in a while. Okay. Is that a goal of yours then for the next few years or something? It is, yeah. And where do you think you'd want to push yourself in ice or? I think a little Everything. all over the place. Yeah. There's definitely some things in ice that I want to do that would be pretty, that would push me a little more. I haven't done hard mixed climbing in a long time. Mm. Not that I was ever really that climbing that hard in either anyway, but I'd like to get back to a, a decent shape in mixed climbing for me. And cool. then... Yeah, overall, I'd, I'd like to be more well-rounded with with crack climbing. I tend to do a lot of quartzite and granite cracks, but I don't do as much desert cracks. Mm -hmm. and, and I tend not to go much above, like, a number four Camelot. Mm. Like, just a little above above fist, you know? Like yeah. It'd be, I, I need to do that. I, I tend to look at roots and if they have long sustained sections of of wider size then i typically avoid mm. them and i need to i need to change that yeah me too probably i always make the excuse oh i don't have those cams in my bag you know but then it's like but you you have to bring them <laughs> you yeah. know like next time then you should bring them yeah yeah it, it's all it's just a skill i just have to apply myself to it mm -hmm. and, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then it will become normal. Yeah. Um, as normal as climbing. A rock. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so let's jump back to this backstory that we keep jumping away from. Okay. Um, so, yeah, just keep going. Okay. Um, yeah, I climbed, I climbed a lot, and over time I found myself just more and more unhappy and I wasn't really enjoying climbing, and I didn't realize it at the time. It's been more in hindsight recently that I've I've kind of realized some of what was really going on. But I would I would just stay super busy, and I would be traveling all the time, working full time, more than full time, doing photography, writing guidebooks, trying to do first ascents out as many days as I could during the ice season, whatever it was, just not stopping and is this is this all through your 20s uh my 20s and 30s mm -hmm. and yeah it just slowly became worse and worse and over time i realized that now that i was i was using climbing as avoidance mm. and it to an extent it stopped being fun um, mm. i would still have those days where i went out and it was great but as soon as i stopped as soon as i had to go back to normal mm. life or something, I would, I would get depressed, mm. and I would just have a really hard time. And so I'd 
get home and then I'm like, oh, well, I need to work on my guidebook or I need to do this or that or, you know, I would just do anything I could to stay busy. And... Were you married at the time? Yeah. Yeah, my when... wife and I uh, were married in 1996. We've been... Um, March will be 24 years. Well, I was seven years old. <laughs> <laughs> Told you I was an old woman. Um, yeah, and it just got to the point, like, I couldn't figure it out early on. I would do these slideshows and travel travel around to different climbing festivals or when I would put out a new guidebook and do a book release party with a slideshow, people would come up to me and like congratulate me or talk to me about it and I would actually feel horrible. Like I I would be even more depressed and I would hate myself anytime someone did that and I didn't understand it at the time and now now I do. And you know, I, I was using climbing as avoidance, and the reason I had such a hard time with it is because people thought I was somebody I wasn't. And I think deep inside, I always thought, well, if they knew who I really was, they wouldn't be talking to me like this. Like, they wouldn't be my friends, they wouldn't be climbing with me, they wouldn't be, you know, they wouldn't like me or respect me, they would hate me for who I am. And so everything I did just felt empty. And yeah, it just got to a point where everything was super dark. And I lost two really close friends in, in the fall of 2016. And I got really depressed after that. And that winter, I had a hard time climbing at all. I think a lot of us in the Salt Lake climbing community were struggling with the loss and things just got darker and darker and by May I decided I was going to quit my full-time job and just try to do freelance work because you know I blamed everything else you know like I just wasn't happy at work I wasn't I wanted to be a photographer and designer and do all these things but and I was doing that and I had an amazing job and I had a really a great job but doing it for myself would have been better. There was always something. And so mm. I quit my job there and was home for like a month. When, and then my wife went on a trip to Europe for a month. And so then I was home alone. I, was, I didn't see anybody. And I got to the point where I was just super suicidal. And I had planned out my death. I was going to have an accident soloing on this kind of easy, easy ridge scramble in Little Cottonwood Canyon. And the day before, I started just kind of scrolling on Facebook, wasting time, and a friend posted something. It was a quote from this author named Brene Brown, and it was like three paragraphs, and every, like it felt like she wrote that just for me. Nothing had reached me the way that that did. And the last line of the quote was, it's time to show up and be seen. And I decided instead of going out the next day to die, that I booked a hotel in Vegas and drove to Vegas that night. And I went out dancing. Such I, a crazy <laughs> turn of events. <laughs> yeah. And I was scared to death. 
um, it was it was hard to you know walk out of a hotel and reveal who I was even to strangers and then go to this club but I I went there and for four hours like I just danced and I could be myself and I was so happy wow and it was just this amazing night and then I had to go back to pretending again did you make any friends in that club did you talk about what happened in that no, day no just danced yeah yeah I I still had a hard time I mean it was months before I could tell other people who I was but I I got back and I knew I needed to do something if I was gonna if I wanted to stay alive like I had to get help and so I reached out to a friend who was a therapist and asked her to recommend someone to me I didn't tell her what was going on um, and she recommended someone to me and I couldn't even like when I left a phone message for the therapist I couldn't tell her what was going on and just kind of that I was suicidal and was very vague about it and I had a hard time yeah it was really hard for me to tell her that I was transgender mm. and how did it feel just saying those words for the first time it was horrible I in a lot of ways went to therapy hoping that she would tell me how I could be happy pretending mm. because being trans was was just as bad if not worse than being dead in your mind in my mind yeah because everyone would know you know if I if I came out everyone would know my life my wife might leave me everyone would abandon me I wouldn't be able to get work there were so many things and it's the problem is, is it's true for a lot of people like that is a reality and I'd been taught my entire life um, based on growing up in, in Utah. I grew up Mormon and yeah, that meant I was going to hell and I'd never see my family again. And um, yeah, I was a horrible, evil person because I was born this way. And um, I'd listened to my climbing partners and people I worked with in the climbing industry tell homophobic and transphobic jokes for years. And I kept track of all that. Like, I, I worried that, like, okay, well, these 30 people or so that I'm close with, they're out. Like, they're not going to support me because they, you know, he said this, like, four years ago, and they said that at this time. And, you know, like, I, like, the things that they said are still kind of burned into my mind. Mm. Like, it was just so painful knowing who I was. I couldn't fully... I didn't know what trans was until I was in my 20s. I just thought I was just mentally ill or or something back then. Like, there was no one else like me. Like, I just, there was something wrong with me. So did, and, did you always feel like a woman? Yeah. I, like, we would have family prayer together when I was, when I was young. And then we were supposed to pray at our bed. And so I would kneel at my bed and pray every night that I'd wake up the way I was supposed to be. Mm. And I knew I was supposed to be a girl. And you, you were harboring that your whole life and yeah. never told anyone. Yeah. Wow. And I finally, like, I got to a point where 
in my later 20s, I told my wife that I was trans. And, but she didn't have to worry because I would never transition. Like, I was stronger than everybody else. You know, I was a climber. I was in the army. I, you know, I could, I could manage. I could get by. And how did yeah, she react to that? Uh, she's mostly blocked it out. Like, she, looking back, she remembers all the different times where, like, for my birthday or Christmas, she would give me makeup or some clothing or something like that because, and she hated doing that. But she did it because she knew I needed to be myself here and there and figured that was the end of it. But she has mostly blocked that out. And, I mean, it was hard for her. I, I remember in 2004, I went to work dressed as myself and I got to play it off because it was Halloween you know was that the best day of your year it was amazing (laughs) it was it was great day um but she saw how happy I was and I kind of freaked her out you Mm. know yeah it freaked me out too anytime I was able to finally feel like I could be myself I would hate myself so much after that that it would be months before sometimes even years before I could allow myself to to be me again. And how, how did it feel when you, you mentioned before you didn't know that trans was a thing until your early 20s? Tell me a little bit about yeah, what that, that was, was like. Um, that was probably like 98 when I was in college. The internet was just kind of only been out a few years and I don't know whether it was in college or online or what but I finally found the word transgender and like in some ways it was horrible because of everything associated with it but at the same time like knowing that i wasn't alone was huge Mm. knowing that there were other people like me that that yeah it wasn't totally it wasn't totally out there and just alone like helped in some ways but then every depiction i ever saw of a trans person was negative they were always the jokes in movies they were always on the daytime television talk shows where it was always a joke and so-and-so is really a man and surprising their partner with it or on crime dramas they were always the prostitutes or sex workers that got murdered and you know they always made jokes about them too and you know like it, and yeah just everything about trans people was negative and there wasn't much information out there there wasn't a way to really find out much more unless you outed yourself in some way mm. and I wasn't at a point where I could do that until until 2017 and yeah I finally told my therapist and I struggled for months after that I was still suicidal for about six months after that in therapy and I kept moving forward with it. I told my wife when she got back from her trip and she struggled with it, but she was she was so supportive the entire time, even though every step forward was hurting her in a lot of ways. But she also saw how much happier I was as I kept moving forward. But then, you know, I'd constantly like what what's going to happen when I tell a friend and what's going to happen when some of the companies that I work for you know do photography or design work for find out and am I going to be able to work again 
or am I going to have to move and start over and work for some corporate Fortune 500 that has you know a non-discrimination policy and has insurance that would support me and and that like there just aren't many resources and thought that might have to be my life and I didn't want that to be mm. um, yeah going through that I, I felt like the cure being myself was almost worse than than being dead because I still might end up dying because I wouldn't get support I would be harassed I would be made fun of I couldn't get work whatever it might be and then I'd still kill myself and everyone would know and so how how did you manage to turn those thoughts around so that you felt prepared to make the leap there was it was a lot of therapy I spent a lot of time and had a couple amazing therapists that really helped me out um, the thing that Finally turned it around. I went to California for a three-day intensive therapy uh, program. And it was like a yeah, multi-day and, and just really long sessions. And so I was really able to dive in deep and work on things. And by that point, I'd started hormones. Uh, I had a little bit of an idea of a timeline and plan. It was still more than a year. This was right before Christmas of 2017, and it was probably going to be like 2019 before I would even come out to anybody. But towards the end of that therapy thing, I decided to go out one night afterwards. I was, it was in San Francisco, and I went out as myself, and I had a, had a pretty fun night. Came back, and I walked past this full-length mirror in this Airbnb that I was staying at, and I just stopped and I couldn't move and just was staring at myself and I just started crying and just started apologizing to myself for hating who I was and for hiding who I was and I told myself probably the first time in my life that I loved myself And I made myself a promise that night that I would never hide who I was again. Wow. And I don't know. I, I came back from that trip and Sherry could see it right away. We have this tradition on Christmas Eve where after after dinner, a lot of our friends come over and we we play board games and get drunk. And I got home right bef right at the start of that basically, and my house was full of all these people I cared about, and I'd, I'd only come out, there's probably 15 people in the house, I'd only come out to Sherry, my wife, and then a, another couple there, but it was like, this is my family, and I'm gonna be fine, like, I, even though I hadn't told them, I, I just knew with that group, like, it was gonna be okay, and yeah, I still had to pretend for a while while I was working on things, but it, it just completely changed everything. Just accept, finally accepting that's who I really was and that I would figure it out. I accomplished and figured out a lot of things in my life already and I could do the same with this and it wasn't gonna be easy and it hasn't been.
but yeah, it was just, I don't know, with all, all the self-work, being able to find love for myself is what really changed it. And then how, how was it when you came out, you know, all these fears that you had, you know, how many of them actually were real, I suppose? Um, they were all real, not to the extent that I thought they would be, but I've experienced most of them at this point. So people rejecting yeah. you as you? Yeah, I've um, had people reject me. I've had people leave my life because of this. I've had people say and write horrible things about me. I've had things thrown at me. Um, people point and stare all the time. Um, I definitely am treated a lot differently. Yeah, there's been a lot of negative things to it. Mm. But at the same time, I wake up every day and I see myself in the mirror. And I would rather have people hate me for who I am than love me for someone I'm pretending to be. And that's, I don't know, that has helped me a lot. And then just, I got to a point where I was tired of being afraid and decided that I was going to be very vocal about how I did everything. And so I came out very loudly mm -hmm. and publicly. And that's led to a lot of magazine articles and uh, podcasts. And there's some video things going on. And What motivated you to be so vocal about it? Because I didn't have anyone. There were there were some other trans people and I finally started meeting them as I was coming out, but there wasn't anyone in climbing. There wasn't anyone in the outdoors. And there was a big day for me in, in 2017, I think it was October, um, Climbing Magazine had the women's issue come out and there was an article on this woman, Jamie Logan, who did some of the first ascents on the diamond in Rocky Mountain National Park and the Emperor, um, the Emperor face that in on Mount Robison and you know, Steve House, he did it. Steve House did it like five, six years ago, thought he was doing a first ascent and then found all these pins on there from the first ascent party. And Jamie had done that in 78 and free climbed the whole thing. And Steve put it at M8, you know, like wow. she's a badass mm -hmm. and she's trans. Mm. And that day I finally called the doctor and made an appointment to, um, to talk about hormone therapy. Like just knowing that mm -hmm. there was someone else out there like me mm -hmm. in climbing because, you know, hormones and, and other medical things that trans people um, can go through, they change your body a lot. I've lost more than 40 pounds of muscle mass my body is very different now than it was two years ago. And I had no one to ask, you know, how does that affect your climbing? How, how are you able to train still? Like what, what changes? I didn't realize how much hormones would affect ice climbing. I am so cold now all the time. I can't keep warm. I've had to change what I wear. I've had to get warmer boots. I have to wear warmer gloves now. Um, I have to tape for cracks and I never 
had to tape that much for cracks. Um, mm. Men's skin is a lot thicker. Women's skin is mm. is thinner, and so like women bruise more easily and scrape more easily in that because of it. So, you know, there's all these things I didn't know. I didn't have anyone to ask, and I knew how dark of a place I was in that I wanted to be that. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be who I needed and never had. And I wanted to, in some ways, I felt if I did it quietly, it would be easier for people to attack me, easier for people to kind of be there. But if I came out loudly and had a lot of people support me, then it would be a little bit harder for people to to be as negative. And so kind of those two things combined, I'm just like, I'm going to, yeah i'm gonna be loud about it yeah and now i get messages all the time from people who they thought they were the only one Mm. in climbing or the outdoors and then they heard my story and you know it's allowed them to to transition or to come out or or to keep going Mm. and that's that's been amazing yeah I bet that's been really fulfilling to see how much of a positive impact you're having on the community. Yeah. Yeah. It's that's cool. It's great and it's like it's not me doing this alone. Like by me coming out, it helps someone else. And as soon as they come out, everyone in their sphere of influence has to deal with it. You know, so many people don't at least knowingly, they've never met a trans person. Mm. And the more people that are willing to come and able to come out because they saw someone else like them, the more everyone's going to have to face it. Like, this mm-hmm. is this is real. Yeah, this is normal. There, there are going to be a percentage of people who are trans. Yeah. And they exist in all communities. Yeah. Right yeah. now, they, they estimate that trans people are as common as redheads. Like as far as the percentage, wow. overall, and is that people who who are out or people who, including people who are still not, In, including people who are still not mm. out, most likely. Yeah. Because um, there's still there there are so many that I I'm talking to even right now that aren't fully out to mm. maybe only a couple people in their life, and they're slowly working their way out. Yeah. Uh, and. You know, depending on where you live, what your job is, what your financial resources are, there are so many things that play into whether you can safely come out. In the U.S., there are states where you can't legally transition or have have your driver's license changed to reflect your gender. Um, you can't find doctors who will prescribe you hormones. The, the hospital in your area might be run by a Catholic church or another religion that won't allow any um, any medical prevent or medical measures for trans people. Um, there's you know so many there's states where you can be arrested for indecent exposure by using a public bathroom. You know there's a lot of a lot of barriers, mm. and it's it's very costly. It's very time consuming. You have to go to a lot of therapists and get permission letters and you have to have permission letters from doctors and you have to have you have to spend a lot of time and money just to get a diagnosis that then you can take to a judge or or some elected official depending on on the state mm. to have your 
case heard or, or plead your case to, to have things changed. Mm. And some people don't even have that access. And mm. so it's, it's, it's difficult. Yeah. So how, how much of a responsibility do you feel like you have to talk about your experience? Um, I feel like there's a lot of responsibility and that's hard a lot of times because I think a lot of people who are from underrepresented groups often have to be representative of, of their entire group and it's not always a, a fair burden to have mm. on anyone. Um, I feel like often I am just the trans climber mm. instead of a climber who's done all these things with photography, with guidebooks, with first ascents, with travel, with all the things I've accomplished sometimes mm. just get erased and I just become the trans climber. Mm. And that's not mm. a good place to be a lot yeah. of times. But I also know that it's really important uh, because of the messages I get from other people, because of what it's done for other people. I just want to try and find a balance, I think, of of advocacy and being there trying to trying to advocate for those who are different than what you typically see portrayed in climate or the outdoors, but still gonna be me as mm -hmm. as a person and share my other talents. Mm-hmm. How did you, you how do you use social media to do these things? Um I am usually pretty open. I have two accounts. I have, for Instagram anyway, I have my photography one that I mostly put photo stuff on there, but I, I still do some uh, posts about um, trans-specific issues. But then my personal one is where I do a lot more posts about some of the things that trans people or I have to go through. And I, I go in spurts to where I'll post regularly, or somewhat regularly for me, I guess, um, for a few weeks, and then I won't post anything for three or four weeks. And then I'm like, okay, I've built up enough where I'm ready to do it again. And there are, there are things that I feel like I should post, but I need a few things in my life that I keep just for myself. And so I don't share everything. But then I struggle because I feel like, well, if I, I should be sharing that because it could help mm. with that. But I'm still trying to figure mm. out that balance. I think that's, that's the kind of the same for everyone, is, isn't it, as well? Just like you want to be honest on social media, which means it, things get personal quick when you want to be honest. Yeah. But then you also want to have some sense of privacy as well. Yeah. Um, and it must be even harder for you to strike that balance yeah it, it can be yeah i had to drop out of um, teaching and presenting at a ice fest a few weeks ago and it was almost impossible to not be very to not be specific about the reasons why and they're very personal reasons mm. but you can't just say you're going to hospital <laughs> yeah <laughs> But that's yeah. still personal, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Mm. And so, yeah, it's kind of tricky. Like that's, you know, there's there's a lot of things with being trans that people feel 
I don't know, almost in a sense of entitlement that they should be able to know things about you or know, you know, ask questions. Like, mm. you would never walk up to some woman you don't even know or just saw and asked if if she had a hysterectomy or or some you know very private sensitive mm, surgery or she's on hrt or something yeah, yeah but people feel like they can walk up to a trans person and ask all about surgeries and that's interesting and their their genitals and that mm. you know like it's, we're I can't imagine ever doing that. I can't imagine being that rude, but I guess this is rude some people in the world. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, it's pretty common, even with people that I think are very polite and nice, and they're mm. just curious. Yeah. Because there isn't, there hasn't been that much information, mm. you know, publicly about there. People don't know or understand, and they want to know. And, in our, and I think a lot of times, people feel like there's certain things they have to know in order to understand, but a lot of times the things that people want to understand about it won't tell you any more than, mm. I don't know, they, they just won't, won't like what someone's genitals are don't, don't really tell you anything about that person. No. Right. You must have to deal with the, like this emotion of, of being offended quite often. And I wonder if you have maybe have a have a better insight into whether someone's well intentioned or not. And do you find that you meet people who will get things wrong, but they're well intentioned and they don't mean it? And then there's people who aren't well intentioned. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think overall, I feel like I'm I've been someone who I think reads people pretty well. And always has been very in touch emotionally to, to other people and I've been able to connect in a lot of ways and so I think for the most part I I do have a pretty good sense of who's you know saying the wrong thing just because they don't know versus who's really trying to hurt me and I've afterwards had some of my my concerns validated about certain people um, from others and it's good to know that, you know, I... Your intuitions I, are correct. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think there are, there are a lot of people who just don't know and understand, and so they'll say or do the wrong thing. And it's still, even from well-intentioned people, I don't know, on the wrong day, it still can really hurt. Mm. But I but I, I have to do self-work, you know, and and realize that, I know that person isn't trying to hurt me. It still did mm. in some ways, but that's that wasn't their intent. And so I'm still, yeah, I'm not going to shy away from that person. But it's, a lot of what happens is more, it's an accumulation. Like it isn't, you know, someone says one thing that makes me upset. It's that all week, Every single day, people are pointing and staring, and even well-intentioned people. And then, you know, someone threw something at me, and I didn't know what, how to react to that. And then the next day, someone I knew misgendered me or something, and I lost it. Mm. And so it wasn't necessarily yeah. them. It was just the accumulation of it all. Yeah. The fact that I am constantly scared now. 
You know, I, I used to be able to go anywhere I wanted and not have to worry. I'm I'm six foot four. I was two thirty five, two forty pounds, and um, built. I got picked on a lot growing up, and I built myself into someone who wouldn't get picked on. But then I hated myself for every bit of that muscle that I put on. But I could walk wherever I wanted, and no one would mess with me. And I saw this in the in-between stage when I was still having to pretend um, to be a guy during the day and then go out with myself at night. That, like I, I was in Denver for the outdoor retail trade show, and yeah, I could walk around anywhere. And then that night, I went out with some friends to a bar. And within five minutes of walking in there, a guy groped me. And I have had that a lot. I love to go dancing. Like, dancing helped save my life, and I can't stop. And so when I travel, I try to go dancing, and often I'm on the way to an ice fest or climbing fest, and so I'm usually alone. And so I'll go to these clubs and, and try to dance for the evening, and it happens a lot. Like, I get groped a lot. And... These are people that often who are making fun of me or groping me or doing things like I know now, like if, if it came down to it, if I had to fight, they would lose and lose badly, <laughs> but they're not afraid of me. And that's kind of a constant thing. Like trans, trans people are attacked in bathrooms all the time. And to go climbing, I'm going to these small rural towns that haven't had much exposure to someone like me or anyone who's really different. And I have to use the bathroom in a small town truck stop. You just drove from Yosemite to mm. Salt Lake. and the scary enough as it is. Some of those, yeah. And you pull up to some of them and on the, the truck there's bumper stickers that have slurs against gays or trans people. There's, you know, visual symbols on there of, of things that to certain communities represent um, hate. And so I'm parking next to these vehicles that have that. I have to go in there and I'm alone and know that I could, I could be attacked at any moment. And so I'm constantly scared now. I have to Google whether I can go to different states and use the bathrooms. I just taught at a, a climbing fest um, for the Flash Foxy Women's Climbing Fest in Tennessee and they passed a law that, that I mentioned earlier that could apply the Indecent Exposure Act to me using a public bathroom if, if another woman had a problem with me being in there, which means I would be on a sex offender registry list for the rest of my life just for using the bathroom. And so for that week that I was there, anytime I had to go to the bathroom, I would have to hop in my car and drive across town to try to get to my hotel because I was too afraid to go into a public bathroom unless I had a bunch of friends around me. It's and then so... going to teach, the crag was 40 minutes away, and I had to stop a small-town gas station, and I'm passing Confederate flags and other, other flags that represent a group of people that often hate who I am without even knowing me. And so you have all that combined, and it's just, I'm scared all the time. I'm harassed all the time. And it's completely changed how, how I interact with the outdoors, how I interact with other people, and how I even live my life. 
Like, I don't shy away from going to these places, but I sometimes choose certain times a day to go to these places, to certain places. I only go to some places when I'm with a bunch of friends now. Like, there's just a lot of things I've had to change in my life just to feel safe. Mm. And I still don't feel safe. What, how, how much do you think needs to change and given how fast or slow you think things are changing, you know, are you hopeful that at some point in your lifetime you will feel safe? Unfortunately, I don't know that I will feel safe in my lifetime. It's, it's kind of a funny thing right now. Trans people are more visible than they've ever been. There's, you know, there's more and more trans actors and musicians and artists and people in sports and, and whatever out there. But the more visible we've become, the more backlash there is to that. And, you know, the current administration in the U.S. has, over the past couple years, consistently attacked any protection trans people have had. And I don't know if that's going to change anytime soon. I think as more people come out, it affects more people, it will slowly start getting better. But that doesn't always equal changing the way governmental policy is done. Mm. In a lot of these smaller towns, if someone is going to come out as gay or trans, they'll often wait until they're old enough to leave and leave and move to a bigger city or something because they don't feel safe there. But that means that town never gets the chance to, to know somebody. Mm. And I don't, I can't blame them in, in any way, mm. but bigger towns are, are going to deal with this more and more. It's going to become more commonplace, but in small town America or small towns all throughout Europe, you know, it's not that common because anyone, although it is common in, in many ways, those people have left. Mm. So it's going to take a long time for it to, to affect people more. I think for it to really change, people have to know somebody, unfortunately. Mm. And that's kind of a shitty thing that, you know, people can't have the empathy without having that connection to some people. But for a lot of people, they just don't. I think social media should help, though. I guess because it, if you even if you don't know someone, you can you'll see celebrities or or maybe you'll follow trans people. It does to an extent. The problem with social media is it has gotten so fine tuned to your interests that people who believe a certain way usually see mm. mostly content that reinforces that, that mm. goes along with what they think. Yeah. And so people who might have a problem with trans people right now who could be open to it might not ever see my social media mm. or someone else's. And I think even communities are that way that because of class, because of a lot of different things. People move to the sections of town where they know there's people who believe similarly to them. I live in an area like that. This mm. this area, Sugar House, is very liberal, it's very young and hip. 
in a, in a lot of ways. Mm. And you go around during Pride Week and there's Pride flags everywhere. You go into a neighborhood five miles away and you won't see a single Pride flag. Mm. And in some ways, you know, we it's a self-fulfilling thing. I don't want to live there because I'm afraid of that. But unless I move to an area like that and let people get to know me, then mm. it's going to continue. And social media is just another version of yeah. that where we just see a lot of what reinforces who we are, who we think we are, and what we want to hear. Instead Staying of, out bubbles. Yeah, instead of challenging us. Mm-hmm. And I've tried to do some things with my own social media feeds and who I follow to change mm-hmm. that a little bit and follow a lot of different accounts that cause me to think about um, my my opinions on a lot of things, my my ideas on a lot of things, but there's still there's still so much that gets in that, that reinforces mm-hmm. everything. And most people don't take that step of surrounding themselves by different ideas. Most people like to just stick with what they know. Yeah. And I'm I'm surrounding myself with different ideas, but in many ways it's progressive liberal ideas. Mm. I'm not sure. I'm not adding in, you know, other voices from the opposite Mm. side. You're adding some moderates, moderate conservatives. Yeah. (laughs) But I don't, it, it's tricky because I know on some of those, like I'm going to see things that dehumanize me that are completely against me that are about taking away any rights or protections that I have. And that can be hard to to see that Mm. it's hard enough day to day that I don't want to surround myself all the time with that, but I also need to, in some ways to an extent yeah you know? but yeah it's it's tricky to mm. try to have that I, yeah so I, I do challenge myself and push myself but still in in mm. ways that I feel like I should be pushing myself mm. in and that might not always be the right the right way mm. yeah that's difficult yeah it's like uh, you'd hope that you could have a a wide sort of intake politically without intaking too many hateful messages. Yeah. You'd hope that that would be the case. Yeah, I tried to follow a few kind of... Uh, I don't know if you're on Twitter. No, not much. Mm, I have a Twitter account, of, but I really haven't yeah, used it. Yeah, it's sort of a horrible place, but it, it is somewhere where if you, you... I tried to follow people that I no, I disagree with on, on multiple things just to have have things challenged. I also follow, it's one of the few hashtags I actually follow, but it's a hashtag, this is what trans looks like. Do you follow yeah. that one? Uh, I hashtag a lot of my stuff with that. Okay, I don't, maybe but, I follow it because of you, I don't know. Might be. Um, but I just thought, you know, you're the only trans person I know and I should have more exposure. I want to be normal, it to be normal for me, you know? Yeah. And so I wonder, what do you think are some of the things non-trans people can do to to normalize it for them and to to be kinder around it? Uh, definitely a similar thing to what you're doing, following a lot of 
different trans people. Like I'm, I'm white, middle class. I work in a reasonably liberal, liberal um, field in the outdoors and climbing. And with genetics and the, the resources that I've had, I'm probably in the top, top 10% of best possible outcomes for my transition and in some ways my life. And so there's no way if someone just follows me, they're going to fully understand what it is to be trans. Because even though I've had issues with people harassing me, throwing things at me, saying things, I haven't had, I don't know, I'm, I'm much safer. I haven't had some of the really horrible things happen to me that others have. I haven't had to deal with that. And some of the privileges I have affect how I decide to to try to educate people on the things I talk about. You know, that's all influenced by by a lot of different factors that I'm privileged to have and someone else is going to have very different viewpoints, very different experiences that, that are going to help, help give a better idea. I mean, that'd be like, mm. you know, someone from England wanting to learn about, about Turkey. And so they follow one Turkish person and like, mm. Oh, that's, this is what Turkey's like, mm-hmm. you yeah. know, or, you know, someone from here following someone from like you and like, Oh, like Hazel represents all of the UK. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. it's, there's so many more experiences there. And if you really want to understand it, it's following or getting to know a lot of different people and mm-hmm. what their experiences are. But really it comes down to just having empathy. Mm-hmm. And like often, you know, I find a lot of times when I bring up some of the things, you know, like people want to say that climbing is for everyone or the outdoors is for everyone, you know, and I'll bring it, well, it is, but not really. Like the outdoors, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter who you are, but the outdoors is surrounded by people, mm-hmm. and there are a lot of, a lot of barriers, for safety, monetarily, depending on where you live, whatever that can make that. And often people bring up some of these points, and people just kind of shut down, and don't want to listen to those arguments. And sometimes you need to think about why it might be that way, why I might be scared driving through a small town seeing certain signs when all my other friends in the car are just like, oh, it's no big deal. Like they'll, they'll roll their eyes when they see the Confederate flag or, you know, a Trump 2020 flag when they're everywhere in this town, whereas I'm sitting there freaking out knowing that we're going to stop at the gas station in this town and they don't even realize it, mm. but I'm scared to death. Mm. And so I think in some ways, you know, kind of being aware and being in tune when, when someone does bring up something like that, there are, there are reasons behind it. Mm. And, you know, you can learn something from it. It might not be fully applicable to your life or you might not fully agree with everything, but, you know, they're bringing up those points often for legitimate to them reasons. Mm. And so, yeah, just trying to to empathize and listen, mm-hmm. I think can go a long way. Good things. Yeah. Whatever, really. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I wonder if we should leave it there because we've been we've been chatting for eighty-seven minutes now. Is there anything you want to add before we close up? Um, Do you feel like we've talked about? Yeah. Overall, I feel pretty good. 
I think, yeah, just thanks for being willing to talk to me. Really well, appreciate thank it. you for talking to me. <laughs> I appreciate it. It has been a good chat. Yeah. We talked about a lot of different stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I really appreciated and, you um, and like it was great to hang out this spring and yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was fun in the desert. Yeah. You need to get back there, practice your crack technique. I know, I do. <laughs> it was like the best day ever though. Like how many people can say they outclimbed a 514 plus climber? Wait, when did you outclimb me? I don't remember this. Not you. Oh, Dyla. Dyla and Colette, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we went. It was like so awesome. Yeah, yeah, true. Yeah. We have this thing in the UK called uh, the ball point. Have you heard of it? Uh-uh. So you know how you have like a red point and pink point? And oh, yeah. Like so it's like if you climb something quicker or in better style or you do something and someone else can't, then you, their default, get to tick everything that they've ticked. So it's like pull the ballpoints. It's like you have a ballpoint pen, and you get yeah. to go get take their guidebooks and just like look at what they've done and just tick everything they've done. Damn, um, what a badass then. Yeah. So not only are you like this badass first ascensionist ice climbing chick, you're also climb five fourteen sport routes. <laughs> nice. I feel so much better about myself yeah, already. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, should we end it there? Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Nikki. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate it. Yeah. All right. Yeah.